The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's show, the wonder of Armagnac, sometimes seen as playing second fiddle to cognac, do its differences actually play to its strength? We'll hear from Joel Harrison, a mousquetaire d'Armagnac, no less, who'll tell us everything we need to know. And imagine you'd had a bird's eye view of the drinks world for the last 20 years or so. Well, Guy Woodward has done just that, ex-decanter editor, now running the luxury publication for drinks lovers Club Enologique. We'll hear what inspires him, how he's seen the drinks world develop over those years, and what does he like to drink? Plus, your usual relevant recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Though it was France's first eau de vie, Armagnac is arguably something of a Cinderella when compared with Cognac. Less famous, certainly not as well understood, But does this actually play to its strength? While Cognac is dominated by those big brands, some of them offshoots of luxury fashion houses, when it comes to Armagnac, the artisans rule the roost. Joel Harrison is the spirits columnist for Club Enologique. He's a consultant, an author, a keeper of the quake, a member of the Gin Guild, and in this context at least, most importantly for today, uh, he's a mousquetaire de Armagnac. And I'm delighted to say he's also a regular on The Drinking Hour. Uh, Joel, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. So just explain your status as a musketeer, first of all. So the uh, general concept of the Musketeers of Armagnac is a sort of group of people that are given an award for supporting the region, the kind of the Gascony region, I guess, the Musketeer region of, of France. Um, it's not specific necessarily to Armagnac the drink, uh, and it encompasses people who have worked in tourism or other food and drink sectors in that region, but it's all about supporting this small um, artisanal uh, rural area of France and making sure that um, uh, all the goods that are produced there, which are top, top quality, are uh, promoted around the world in a sensible manner. Yeah, you get some wonderful wines from down there too, but that's uh, uh, for another day. So Armagnac and Cognac are often spoken of in the same breath. How are they similar and how are they different? Good question, because they're both French brandy and the French, of course, love their flavour and they love their complexity. And in France, they actually consume more Armagnac than they do Cognac. So if you're looking for a French brandy that's maybe a little bit different to, say, Cognac, if you find that a bit a bit bland, and we'll talk about that in a minute, Armagnac's the place to go. So Armagnac differs from Cognac. A, it's older, and we'll get onto the history of that in a minute. But probably the most important aspect of it is that it's still a brandy made from wine, and some of the grapes are the same, Uni Blanc and Fault Blanche and Baco, and these grape styles that we see in cognac. But the distillation is different. Um, in cognac, you tend to distill twice through a Chante still, where you get a spirit up to about 70%. Whereas in Armagnac, you're distilling with a much more rudimentary um, a fantastic kind of piece of kit that's, that distills once. So you're taking your wine that's about 8 9% ABV and the single distillation takes that to a low ABV spirit, or we would describe it as low in, in this side of the world, at between 52 and 60%. What that does is it leaves a huge amount of grape flavour into the base spirit. If you think about distilling, a little bit like cooking a steak, and if, if you distill once, that's rare. If you distill twice, it's medium. And if you over distill beyond that, you're looking at well done. So, you know, rare would be our Armagnacs. Uh, medium double distillation would be your cognacs or scotches. And uh, anything beyond that tends to be at the base for a gin or a vodka. You're very well done spirits. So here we're looking at beautiful, soft, very grapey, very flavorful spirit. So is that the impact in the glass then? Is it grapier? Yes, um, and actually there are two types of Armagnac, one which is very rarely spoken about, which is called Blanche Armagnac, which is effectively white, white grape spirit, and it makes a fantastic martini if ever you're down in that region. It's it's relatively difficult to get hold of um, outside of of France. You can, if you do a quick Google, find some online, but it makes a brilliant kind of 
kind of grapey martini. Um, and then there's the aged uh, version, which is taking that grape spirit and maturing it in French limousine casks um, for a minimum of two years. But of course, we're looking for, for, for more than that. That would be what's known as a VS. Um, uh, same sort of uh, system uh, of labelling as, as cognac with VS, VSOP, XO and Ordage. Um, and looking at those at VS two years, VSOP four years, XO six years, maybe a bit older, and Ordage ten years. Um, and really you're looking for the stuff that's been sitting in cask for, for, for quite some time. Talking of age, uh, you referenced uh, the very rich history of Armagnac, the very first Eau de Vie in France. Absolutely. So it's got this incredible history. Um, it's actually the oldest sort of registered spirit in the world. It was written about, um, in, it was found in some books in the Vatican, which I particularly love, but it was written about um, in some writings from 1310 called The Forty Virtues of Armagnac by a Franciscan theologian called Vital de Four who alludes to these incredible properties of Armagnac. And, and just an aside here, uh, health and safety warning, that, that I can not support this writing from 1340 in terms of what DeFore said. But he said, uh, if taken medically and soberly, it's said to have 40 virtues. It enlivens the spirit if taken in moderation. Uh, it, can, it can render men joyous, preserve youth and delay senility. Um, it also, uh, he talks about it curing hepatitis and drying tears and also, um, how should we call it, doing the same role as the little blue pill that we see these days. So, but uh, I, I, I couldn't support any of those virtues, I'm afraid, but it is bloody tasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, we could all do with 40 virtues, to be honest. But, <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. And uh, yeah. uh, making men merry sounds uh, like um, uh, what might happen if you had a little bit too much of it. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it is incredibly different to cognac in terms of the kind of culture that surrounds it, isn't it? It is. So, I mean, let's start with the production, that side of the culture, before we get onto the, the marketing side of the culture. But the, the culture of production in cognac tends to be a few big cognac houses and their jobs are to bring in the spirit from small producers across the region and bring together a blend, uh, their blend, their house blend of different types of, uh, of styles. So you, you know, obviously the big names, Remy Martin, Hennessy and all these people coming together to produce their own style, but drawing on a relationship with the small producers around the area. What happens in our, and they also have their own some some of their own stills. What happens in Armagnac is very much a, um, a more agricultural process, whereby you have small farm holding small holders uh, doing a variety of different uh, skills across the year, whether it's sort of arable and agricultural uh, farming, um, and then part of that is growing some grapes, small parcels of grapes. They will then often uh, wheel in a still, so the still itself will be owned by um, a local chap and he'll bring it in on horseback on a trailer uh, into the farm. They'll distill for two or three or four days, fill 10, 15 barrels of, of Armagnac before the still then moves on to the next farm. I mean, this stuff is rare. You've got producers making four, five, six barrels a year. That's all they're producing. Um, they leave it to mature in their own cellars. Uh, and it's each farm has its own style and its own kind of history. They very rarely get together um, to produce, as we would know in, in cognac, a kind of house blend. There are these no big overarching houses. These are all tiny boutique producers. And you do get some people who have started to, to curate these boutique producers. There's a great guy called um, Mark DeRose. So he, the, the, the two, two, three Michelin star chef, Ellen DeRose at the Connell, it's his, oh, yeah. uh, it's her, it's her, her um, brother. And he's got this Armagnac house called DeRose. And what he started to do is bring together some assemblages of different ages. Uh, but more important than that, he curates an incredible selection of some of the best tiny cognac houses around. And that's, he's throwing some light on the region and um, helping us to kind of see into these dusty uh, corners of, of, of cognac houses that you might not get to know of if you weren't kind of knee deep in the region. So yes, the style of production is very much more artisanal uh, than it is in cognac. You don't have these big powerhouse 
um, houses or brands like you do there. When it flips over to the marketing, for example, Cognac, because they have these huge powerhouse brands, and as you said at the start, often owned by big luxury houses, uh, they've got a huge amount of money to spend. So, you know, they were able to delve into certain cultures in, in different parts of the world. You know, the rap culture is massive with Cognac and in America. But Armagnac, nope, they've never had that because they just don't have that power of movement and that power of money. I didn't know that about the rap culture and Cognac. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, massive, huge in the in the rap culture in, in the states. A couple of brands, wow. particularly particularly Hennessy, massive, massive in the rap community. There you go. Good grief! Um, so uh, back to Armagnac and the yeah. Um, it's it's had some really tough times. I I, I was recently writing about um, a, a brilliant um, cooperative winery, um, a real innovator, Playmont, uh, down in in Gascony, and they mm. actually began business perhaps only fifty or sixty years ago kind of picking up the pieces from the agricultural decline that had been prompted by a crisis in the Armagnac uh, trade. Um, it's known some really rough times, hasn't it? It has, and I think this is, the, this is what's interesting about Armagnac, is it's, uh, I would always call it quite a robust product, in, in, not, not from the spirit itself, which is light and delicate and, and, and fruity and lovely, um, but robust as in it, it's, it's always sort of been there bubbling away in the background. It's managed to ride out these ups and downs. And perhaps that's because it's, it's never really been sort of in fashion. And if you're never in fashion, you can never go out of fashion, which is, which is what's so nice about it. Yeah, and point. let's not forget, there's a, there's a huge difference between fashion, being fashionable and being stylish. And I always think that, that cognac is kind of, uh, can be fashionable and it can come in these waves. Armagnac is stylish. It's just there, it's classy, it's in the background. And you know, it just, it just ticks along. And yes, it, it's hit some tough times, things like the Phylloxera beetle, which was rough on, you know, rough on many, many uh, vineyards across Europe. And uh, when that hit and it hit French brandy badly, um, it would have opened the door to rum to, to come in, but a lot of the rum produ producing countries were owned uh, islands were owned by countries that had brandy producers, so the Spanish and the French, uh, to some degree the Dutch, and uh, rum, produ rum production was banned to save the sales of, of what little French brandy there was. But that opened the door for Scotch to come in because barley was was unaffected by by the Phylloxera beetle, and it really took the place of, of, of brandy at that point. So yes, it was it wasn't uh, particularly. Uh, didn't have a great period during the phylloxera, phylloxera uh, time, but it's coming back through now. And like I say, with this quiet, this whisper, and that's what I really love about Armagnac is, is if you order an Armagnac at the bar, it says a lot about you over ordering, over over, over ordering a cognac. I think. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, we'll uh, I have to bear that in mind next time I'm uh, <laughs> standing at the bar, and just in case you're there in the background. Um, there are some uh, wonderful grape varieties that are really quite obscure, certainly um, when you think about it through a, from an international uh, perspective um, in Gascony. Um, what are the grape varieties we're talking about here and, and to what extent are they um, important uh, when they're in a, a distillate? Good question. So uh, if we're going to use kind of cognac as our, as our uh, plumb line with this one, if you think about cognac having um, six kind of crews uh, where they can produce their grapes and produce their wine. Uh, Armagnac only has three, Baz Armagnac, Tenerez and Alt Armagnac. And these three regions produce uh, just um, four main grapes that you can uh, that you can rely on there, which is Uniblanc, Folblanc, Baco 22 and Colombard. Um, Baco was the one that came in and sort of saved the day really with um, uh, after Phylloxera because it was able to be grafted on and, and, and grown. I think it came over from the States. But these don't make good wines, right? These are high acid, um, full of sort of full of the flavours that you wouldn't necessarily want to, to have in your glass um, when you're drinking a still wine, but they make fantastic spirit. Uh, and that high acidity works really well with that single distillation, that low ABV spirit that comes through the Armagnac stills and matures brilliantly in, in cask. And that little bit of acid really, really helps uh, with that maturation and pulling out the flavours of the limousine oak. And are we seeing uh, the resurgence of some of those near extinct grape varieties when it comes to Armagnac? Because I know in the wines, uh, those cooperatives I mentioned, like Playmont, are bringing back some of these uh, obscure varieties. Is that something you're seeing 
in Armagnac as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple of producers I was out visiting uh, when I was out there last, which obviously due to recent circumstances was now about three years ago. Um, and they're all working really hard to, to, to replant and working quite hard with um, the, the BNIA, which is the Bureau of, of Armagnac Production. So both the BNIC, the Cognac one, and the BNIA, the Armagnac board, um, are responsible for, the, for production and grape varieties and laws within those regions. Um, of the production of the spirit and we're seeing both the, the, the cognac region and the armagnac region looking at historical grape varieties yield how they can do things in a more sustainable manner which is really important and we're seeing some great producers coming through now growing what they're describing as ghost varieties and i love that term um, and yeah. obviously it's a it's a huge experiment because yes you know these these take time to bed in the roots take time to bed in you know what do you get 25 years from a good rootstock so they're looking at how these develop over time um, how the spirit works straight off the still but then importantly how these how these grapes and there is historical records of them but how they mature in cask and that's something you you can't hurry you have to have to wait and see so i'm looking forward to the next uh, the, my, my next 40 years having just done my just over my first 40 years to see how some of these are going to mature uh, in cask and, uh, and and me visiting the region when i'm 80 wandering around drinking some armagnac from, from previously ghosted grape varieties well of course thinking of those uh, 40 uh, virtues if you drink plenty of armagnac you should easily make it to uh, 80 <laughs> i'd have thought you'd be as, uh, i would hope so Fit as a young stag by the time you get to 80. Uh, talking of age, um, uh, how does Armagnac age? So Armagnac is, uh, really does age very well. And a little bit like cognac, what we're looking for is uh, getting some of those flavours out of the cask that still balance out the grape flavours and the grape notes, but also bring in some of these lovely, we would describe it as rancio notes. And those notes are... Um, kind of extra oxidized notes of wooden spirit that come through and they manifest themselves in almost like a kind of forest floor autumnal forest floor or some would say mushroomy note which you know I like mushrooms but I don't want mushrooms in my drinks so I, I, for me I, I, I'm not such a fan of that description but it's it's almost this undeniable age that you get you'll get it when you walk into if you know wine and you walk into a, a good aged wine warehouse or you walk into a, a Dunnage floored whiskey warehouse you get hit with this sense of um, uh, rancio of age that comes through this mix of kind of earth and oak and spirit and atmosphere and that's what we want we want that depth of flavor that comes through one of the things with French brandy which happens both in cognac and armagnac is that when these casks have reached their peak and they're sort of tested on, on a semi-regular basis to ensure that you can remove the uh, spirit from the cask and put it into big glass demijohns so you walk into these if you walk into say a whiskey warehouse the minute it leaves a cask is the minute that the aging has to stop. Whereas with brandies, particularly with a good Armagnac, um, you can pull it out of cask because you still want that fruitiness. You don't want too much oak. So you get that fruitiness, that lovely rancio-y um, forest floor note that comes from the good cask aging. And then you put it into a demijohn and you leave it in these demijohns and they, it can mature and round off in these demijohns and get that little bit of what we would call kind of extra bottle aging, if you like, like a good magnum of champagne would would age with the with the air inside. And when you open it up, you just get that extra little bit of creaminess and, and relaxed spirit. Um, so that's that's what you're looking for with, with, with a good aged Armagnac is not too much oak. I mean, you can still get stuff that is is very, very oaky, um, but it's the duty of the producer to pull it out of cask when it's when it's ready and relaxed. I judged Armagnac recently, as you know, because uh, you were in charge that day at the IWSC <laughs> uh, Spirits um, uh, Awards uh, judging uh, for, for 2021. Um, yeah. Tell me a bit about um, how one should go about um, judging an Armagnac. Well, as with any spirit, you're looking for that balance of uh, complexity on the nose, um, personality on the nose, and flavour. So what we don't want is we don't want too much oak and we don't want too much spirit. We want to find that beautiful marriage between the two. When you lift it up to your nose, you should definitely find there's a grape tone to it and a fruity note. Sometimes that can manifest itself if it's been in the wood a good amount of time with a little bit of extra kind of black currants or black fruits like black cherry, black forest gatto, that kind of stuff. And then when you start to when you start to sip it, it should be rather relaxed in the palate, um, like cognac most. Armagnacs would be bottled around 40% ABV and we're starting to see a trend in 
quote-unquote cask strength uh, Armagnacs coming through, which is great because I find that little bit of extra ABV at 43 or 45 or 48% ABV uh, spirit just adds to that flavour and pushes that flavour through. So you want that to cover the palate, you want there to be a, a good amount of complexity, but you still want to know that it's, it's a great based spirit. Mm, the acidity should have been rolled out by the cask and you're giving that lovely flavour coming through as well. And then when you swallow the finish, you want to be reminded of that lovely drink, but you don't want it to burn. You don't want it to be there. You don't have to take a gaviscon after it. It's something that should be relaxed and smooth down the back of the throat. Linger for a minute or so with a lovely, maybe kind of latent tobacco-y type feeling down the back of the throat. And then you can start all over again. And that, for me, is what makes a great Armagnac. Mmm, it's a great tasting note as well. It makes me uh, want a glass of Armagnac right now. Um, it's actually, um, I, we're going to find out with the IWSC recommendations in a, in a minute, one of them is in astonishing uh, value as a product when you consider what it is and when you compare it to its um, peers, if you like, in the mm. spirit sector. It's really good value, isn't it? I'll give you a great example that my eldest brother was uh, is 50 this year and uh, 10 years ago when he turned 40 I bought him a bottle of 40 year old scotch to celebrate and I think it cost me about two three hundred pounds I don't think I could buy him a bottle of 40 year old scotch today without adding maybe an extra zero on the end of that <laughs> on the end of that bill mm. so I will be buying him and I have done for, for a few of my friends recently um, Armagnac uh, I think I bought a bottle, a friend of mine turned uh, 40 earlier this year, and I bought him a bottle of vintage, which is, is one of the great things about Armagnac, as it tends to come in vintages. So I bought him a bottle of uh, vintage Armagnac from the year of his birth, and it set me back about 120 quid. Quality-wise, pound for pound, it is, for me, the best value aged vintage spirit on the market. Absolutely fantastic. So yes, if you're looking for a gift for somebody, um, have a look at Armagnac. There are some fantastic websites out there that's you know spirit retailer websites out there um, but Armagnac have their own one Armagnac.com and you uh, it allows you to buy direct from the producers I've not done it since Brexit I'll be honest with you so I, I can't guarantee how that's uh, what what duties you might get faced with if you do do oh, that yeah. but it allows you to buy direct from the producers which is is a fantastic way of doing it especially in such a small market as Armagnac. Yeah, I'm sure your brother's worth the extra zero, by the way. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we very uh, much is, but don't tell <laughs> <much. laughs> Finally, I have to ask you this. Do you have a favourite Armagnac? I do. I mean, I've got I've got a few. Um, I mentioned Mark DeRose earlier, and actually, if you're going to look at an introduction to Armagnac, um, have a look at some of DeRose's uh, assemblages, because what you tend to get with Armagnac and, and, uh, is because it's less... Uh, about blending than it is about the individual small producers is that sometimes you can get some very 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 good armagnacs but on the flip side you can get some very very funky armagnacs as well and the job of blending same in scotch same in cognac is to bring together lots of styles to produce something that's a bit more middle of the road um, whereas with armagnac you're getting sort of individual production and individual producers so it can be a little bit hit and miss at times so there is a great assemblage that he does with different vintages 20 20 uh, different ages uh, 20 30 40 years old all fantastic value for money but he also curates a selection of great individual producers so he's a great way in to learn about it but then i also love um, armagnac de lord that's one of the one of my favorite ones they do fantastic vintages but just have a little look around but yeah de rose is a great place to start brilliant all right well um it's as ever you're a, a mind of information um so uh, and inspiration as well actually so thank you very much joel uh, a pleasure talking to you as always on the drinking hour thank you very much cheers david in a moment we'll have the first of our recommendations from the iwsc hall of fame but first here's news of another food fm program you might love Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The drinking hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world, to judge the best in the world. Well, it's time for our first selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame 2021. It makes sense to start with Armagnac, of course, uh, if that chat has your mouth watering. And it's a band of gold for this uh, particular trio. 
Uh, the first one, Waitrose and Partners number one, Armagnac VSOP, a gold medal winner with 95 points. Uh, great quality VSOP Armagnac from a blend across those three regions uh, mentioned by Joel. It's made by Emporia. Uh, the judges, including me on this particular panel, said uh, spicy oak and dark cacao with dried figs and apricots, peach, cinnamon and spice, Christmas cake and green almond hints, caramel and orange peel add further complexity to a beautifully balanced peppery finish. Majestic. Uh, the judges said uh, and that is uh, just 25 pounds at waitrose uh, a bargain if ever there was one as uh, joel and i were saying there's incredible value to be found uh, in armagnac up next we have bass armagnac 1991 chateau de la Cuy, uh, gold with 96 points uh, a 300 year old house producing armagnac from the golden bass armagnac triangle this is a single vintage armagnac which means all the grapes come from one year, but are blended across barrels uh, and sometimes varietals as well. Uh, the judges, including me again, uh, said fresh red berry fruits draw you in with subtle cedar spice, grilled peaches and burnt orange. The palate is supremely balanced, exquisitely smooth and integrated, and the flavours, including a surprising burst of ripe peaches, endure. And that's £125 at Master of Malt. And our third, another gold medal winner with 96 points, Blend XO Armagnac from Armagnac Jano. Uh, here's uh, an interesting fact. The original owner, Pierre-Louis Jano, was against the splitting up of the Armagnac region into those three separate areas. And so as a nod to that, uh, Jano Armagnac is always blended across those zones. Uh, the famous ribbed bottle was only invented in 1980. The judges said of this, elegant and enchanting, stone fruits feature throughout with dried orange peel and white chocolate and sweet spice with slate touches. The finish sweetens up with the most wonderful finish that has superb length, heavenly. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. There can be few jobs more plum if you're a drinks lover than running a magazine dedicated to it, most especially if that publication happens to be dedicated to the top end of it, the luxury end. Guy Woodward has that role running Club Enologique, or Club O as we tend to know it, uh, a part of the group that also includes the IWSC, sponsors of this show. A former editor of Decanter, he's a veteran of Harrods magazine as well, so what makes him tick and what does he choose to drink when he's at home enjoying it? Well, let's find out. Guy, uh, thanks very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thanks, David. Nice to hear from you again. It's nice to have you here. Uh, you oversee a, a very classy magazine uh, that features some of the world's top wines in its very glossy pages. Uh, to many of us, that might seem like a dream job. I'm sure it doesn't sometimes, <laughs> but how did you get into the world of wine writing? Yeah, and, and I sort of have to constantly remind myself that, um, yeah, many people would, would, would kill for this job. And um, don't get me wrong, on, on most days it is, it is a dream. Uh, but, but, I mean, wine, wine was a sort of a, I wouldn't say an afterthought, it, it was secondary to, to journalism. I always wanted to, to get into journalism. I thought maybe first of all about newspapers and, and magazines sort of took my, took my interest. So I did a, a journalism course. I started out, as everyone does, on a very obscure trade magazine, which in my case was directed at the, the fruit machine and casino industry. Uh, <laughs> I love which, that. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> arcade, yeah, arcades, casinos, uh, suppliers and purveyors of, of, of fruit machines and, and, the, and the like. Uh, which was a real eye opener. Actually, I think it was, I think it was quite a good start because it's it's a slightly shady industry, as you can imagine. So they really didn't like the press, <laughs> and even though we were trade magazine and directed only, obviously, at that industry because there's not many consumers who are sort of interested in the mechanics of fruit machines and uh, this sort of thing, but they were still very wary. So it actually taught taught me how to sort of go about winning people's trust and, and sort of eking out a story and actually trying to make a very dry subject interesting um it also afforded me the chance to go on you know business trips to las vegas and monaco so as a as a sort of 24 oh. five year old uh, yeah. fresh fresh to london on a very modest salary i, I suddenly discovered the joys of expense accounts and uh, business trips so it was a 
fantastic uh, opening. And so I thought, yes, great, magazines are for me. One-armed bandits. You then <laughs> uh, end up at uh, Decanter, the Harrods Magazine, now Club O, all of them august um, publications. It would. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, it was a, it was a, you know, there were a few things along the way as well. And I sort of, I, I thought to myself, okay, you know, got into journalism, great. What am I going to do? And I thought I want to, I want to be a sports writer because I love sport. And that, actually, that was a stupid idea because. I, I did sort of dabble. I got a little bit of time on, on The Guardian uh, working on their sports desk for a little while. And um, suddenly sort of, well, gradually more, became aware that actually if you work in a particular specialist field, it can slightly suck the life out of that. And, and it drained the enjoyment of it. And it, you're constantly looking for stories. And I, and I saw all these wizened old journalists who'd been on this sports desk for 20 years and they, the, the joy had gone from it. So... Um, so instead, I found myself, yeah, as you said, at Decanter magazine, on, on a wine magazine. And at the time, I was by no means uh, a great wine connoisseur. I enjoyed, you know, a, um, an Argentinian Malbec for $7.99 as much as an X-Man. And that was about the, 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 the start and end of my, of my knowledge. But, um, yeah, it, it sort of expanded from there. And um, uh, as soon as you get into a, a role like that, I was I was appointed as deputy editor. Um, you know what's not to love, and so I, I stuck with it. And I was fortunate that at the time the magazine was trying to sort of expand its reach to a younger audience, and so they actually saw me as a bit of a newbie and a slightly naive wine lover, as someone who could help with that because they already had a lot a wealth of experience among the the staff and contributors. They didn't need another wine expert; they just needed somebody who could perhaps um, um, make it a bit more accessible. But you are now very much, I would say, having you know shared a few glasses with you a wine expert you certainly uh, I mean if you're not you you certainly um, you, you appear to be so um, well I mean, yeah that was nearly you, 20 years ago so you'd hope in the, in the interim I've progressed a little bit uh, yeah I think you have yeah you've beyond you've, those you've, 799 Malbecs you've soaked some of it up but it's interesting you mentioned the 799 Malbecs because um, it would be easy uh, to assume someone who didn't know you or hadn't uh, read your your copy um, that you wouldn't touch anything that wasn't a sort of single vineyard burgundy, basically. But you have um, <laughs> sort of broader tastes in wine, don't you? Well, also, I have a budget to stick to as well, which I think a lot of people sometimes forget. I mean, it's easy to get spoilt in, in, in this world, isn't it? And, um, you know, I have been lucky to, to, to taste a lot of very fine wines and very expensive wines. But ultimately, um, when it comes to buying your own wines, um, obviously you can't always afford to drink Grand Cru Burgundy. So, and I think that's a really important thing to remember when you're catering for, um, you know, the general public. Um, obviously there are some people, and actually we're lucky enough at, at Club O where a lot of our readers are in that, those upper echelons and they do drink a lot of fine wines and have a nice cellar. But that isn't the reality for a lot of people. I think that was something I always tried to bear in mind when I started out. Um, and it's, it's, it's tricky because you get used to drinking these, these, these fine wines, but it, it's all very well when someone else is paying for them. And also your tastes do change. You know, my, your tastes mature. Uh, you know, when you first start out, uh, maybe in your 20s, if someone gave you, I don't know, um, uh, you know, a, a glass of Latache or something, you, it probably would taste a little bit foreign, uh, a little unusual with those sort of slightly vegetal savoury tones. Mm. And so you become used to those sort of wines and then you crave them and you aspire to them. But again, it's, you're not always able to, um, to drink those every, every night of the week. So, yeah, I mean, I think I still take a lot of pleasure in finding a great wine at um, probably a, a nudged up a little bit beyond 7 99 I think most of the wine I buy is somewhere between 15 and 20 quid. If I find a great Aussie Chardonnay for 12 99 I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Well, that's a really good price point to be looking, actually, I, I would say, too. And it's interesting what you say about uh, the way uh, your palate changes, whether you work in the trade or, or not, actually. Because I remember the first time with a friend of mine uh, when I was really starting to uh, develop a, an in real enthusiasm for wine. And he said to me, we were in Paris at the time, and he said, oh, you must have a bone. You're going to love a bone. <laughs> And I thought it was awful. And it wasn't a bad wine at all. It was just a, a bit of a, a shock to the system compared mm. to what I was used to at that time, which was sort of probably simpler, fruitier, less complex wines. I have to say, I'm, I'm very much um, a fan now. So I'm, I'm glad he, he introduced me to it. But it does, yeah, your palate yeah. does change, doesn't it? 
Oh, for, for sure. Um, and I think that's a journey that's, you know, that's part of the joy of wine, isn't it? To go on that journey. And I still feel like I, I'm on it. I still enjoy, you know, making discoveries as well. Uh, equally, I think you, be, you get used to what you don't like. And, you know, from that point of view, it's quite nice now to, to, to I mean, no one will ever, I'm afraid, convince me of the, of the charms of Gewürztraminer or Torontes. I just don't like those sort of overtly aromatic floral uh, wines. So, you know, okay, fine, I, I know that now and I, can, and I can avoid them, even though, you know, people will accuse me of being slightly blinkered. But, um, but you do, you, you, you get used to certain wines. Um, but hopefully still being able to make some discoveries as well. And, you know, I mentioned sort of, I don't know, finding, taking great joy in finding a good 1299 Aussie Chardonnay. Probably I'd take even more joy in finding something a little bit more recherche, such as an, an Aussie Fiano, perhaps, or, um, I don't know, a German Pinot or something at that price point. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 that discovery route is just such a joy. And I think that's what I found when I came into wine as an outsider. It was that that sort of grabbed me. And, and it was such a, I thought it was be quite a, you know, how, com how complex, how intricate, how varied can wine be? Well, actually, the answer is hugely so. It's interesting you mentioned coming inside as an outsider into the wine world um, because uh, the way wine is communicated is um, often interrogated, um, if not castigated sometimes. Um, and of course, uh, it's the first question, I suppose, is communicating at who. But what is your take on the way wine should be communicated. Well, I think that's key. What you what you said just before that, how you preface the question in terms of who are you communicating with. So there isn't a, a sort of catch-all answer. You know, it's the same as any magazine or newspaper. I remember the, the first thing and the most important thing I probably learned on on on, on my journalism degree was you write for your readers, which is to say you write for their demographic. Um, which is why The Sun is a very different newspaper to the FT, for example, but they're both very successful. Now, you might not uh, necessarily read one or the other or even like one or the other, but both of them do a job for their readers and they write very much in language that they will understand and relate to. And I think it's the same with wine. Something like um, The World of Fine Wine, for instance, the magazine, would be very different in terms of its tone and content to something like The Wine Show on TV but they're both good at what they do. So, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of how wine should be communicated, I think you, first and foremost, you've just got to consider your audience and, and write for that audience. And it won't be possible to cater for people who are looking for a, um, a sort of happy, you know, um, mass market, supermarket, 699 midweek quaffer as for someone who's looking to build up their cellar with uh, class growth from Bordeaux you're not going to be able to cater necessarily for the two of them with the same product and I think if you recognize that and cater for the for your audience then that's the way to go I think the other thing I'd say is that for, with both of them both ends of the spectrum there's no excuse for, 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 for being dry you know ultimately wine is there to be to be enjoyed and to be celebrated and I, don't, I think at both ends of the spectrum we shouldn't, shouldn't lose sight of that so um yeah i find sort of very pompous wine writing that, that, that sort of takes itself a bit too seriously I, I i'm not a fan of that you also quite amusingly i think rail against um, a few of the things that um tend to bore me a little at uh, uh wine dinners that we're very fortunate to be able to to go to um and things like pH. Uh, there's always someone who asks what the pH of the wine is. And, um, I'm, I'm never, maybe I should be, but I'm never especially interested, to be honest. And it's something I've seen you rail against as well. Yeah, I mean, it's slightly. I mean, I think when you're in a room with a lot of journalists, some of them are more technically minded than others. Uh, and that's fine. I like to make fun of them a little bit. Uh, I do sometimes wonder who outside of the wine trade and, and wine writing uh, cliques are interested in, in those technical facets, but I'm sure some people are. Uh, but I think it's a smaller, uh, a smaller circle of, uh, of readers than perhaps some of my colleagues across the wine press uh, think. Uh, so yeah, I prefer, I don't know, you know, I, I prefer when we're talking about wines to find a little bit of colour and a little bit of life uh, in, the, in the story of the wine rather than, you know, overly analysing the batonage or the malolactic fermentation that it's been through, uh, for sure. Yeah, very diplomatic answer as well, but um, I, I agree with you for, for what it's worth. And apologies if um, you've got a chorus of my dog in the background, by the way. Uh, that's probably a wine delivery, and that's uh, 
uh, my dog, um, Griff. Um, well, cel- he's celebrating. celebrating. He's celebrating, exactly. Oh, celebrating his wine delivery. So we'll, we'll plough on anyway, and I'll go and, um, go and give him... It's a, it's a happier sound than the scaffolding which is currently going up in the house next door <laughs> to me. Okay, good. We can um, we can rival each other then with uh, our uh, extraneous uh, sound effects. Um, actually, on the subject of, of kind of um, you know the way wine writing works and indeed wine broadcasting, um, one of the things that is um, a challenge is if you're tasting, um, then it's not smell-o-vision. You know, it's 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 the written word. It's um, it, it, it can be, or, or it can be accused of being a bit exclusive um, in that people can't really take part. Is that mm. something we mm. need to be concerned about, do you think? Um, yes, and I think probably we have been, you know, um, since the beginning of, of wine writing. It's a really, really tricky one. I don't, I mean, I don't particularly enjoy reading tasting notes. You know, there are some writers, and, and I think, you know, probably Hugh Johnson is the non-paré of this, that, that managed to, to write poetic, entertaining and informative tasting notes. Very difficult to do all three, and he manages it. But we don't all have the skill of Hugh Johnson as a writer. And, you know, I find that a lot of descriptions of wine are very dry, very sort of academic, very uh, written from a, yeah, a very sort of um, informed, but perhaps trade-focused perspective. And, and nothing leaves me colder than just a stream of, of flavour descriptors. Because they're difficult to, to, to actually imagine a lot of the time, particularly some of the more, more obscure ones. And, and also it's very much in the eye of the, of the beholder or of the taster. I mean, one man's um, kumquat is another man's orangino. And, and uh, you know, as I say, some, some people do get rather carried away. I'm always, a bit, I'm always a bit dubious about notes where a writer claims to have picked up some some obscure strain of exotic fruit or herb, uh, um, you know, a, a Malaysian apple blossom or a, uh, a note of Tahitian coconut water or something. I just find it, uh, either they're trying to show off or, well, I think they're trying to show off, basically, but it, it's, it makes it very slightly unrelatable. Uh, after a while, they all just sort of blend into a, to one and you sort of think, OK, that probably sounds quite nice and, you know, if I like tropical fruit then I'll probably be all right with that but um that's about I would much prefer they tell us something about the wine you know the specifics of that vintage the particular vineyard maybe the winemaker I don't know um broke his leg on a, on a in a skiing accident um a month before harvest and that to do it all on crutches or so I, I don't know um you know something that, that that gives it a bit of color takes you there um and and just enlivens the wine. and also Comparisons, I think, are very useful for a bit of context. If it's a, a Californian Chardonnay, for example, maybe it's less overtly oaky and tropical flavoured than, than, than other uh, Californian Chardonnays. Maybe it's more akin to a Chablis, for example. So maybe tell me that without talking about, um, you know, it tastes of Sicilian melons or, or something. You're absolutely right about Hugh Johnson as well. I've just been uh, reading uh, his uh, horticultural diary. Uh, I confess I mm. didn't realise that he actually did one, a trad's diary. It's, uh, it's yeah, just been uh, published as a com- uh, compilation and I'm, I'm reviewing it uh, for, for the Clarbenologic website, actually. But, I look forward um, to reading that. Well, it's, it's just a, his writing is just such a joy oh. and his ability to pick up something completely random and make it hugely entertaining is just, is just and, wonderful. And it seems effortless as well, and that's the really annoying thing about it as a, as, as a writer. Mm. I just don't know... Yeah, with all, as with all the, grass, the, the best sort of, um, you know, um, exponents of their craft, whether it's writing, whether it's sport, whether it's music, they make it look very easy. And Hugh Johnson does that extremely well, whereas I think some writers, and certainly in tasting notes, they make it seem extremely, <laughs> like a lot of effort has gone into it, uh, which perhaps makes, you know, some, some tasting notes a bit of a... Uh, a flog to get through but uh, yeah i mean he's he's as enthusiastic knowledgeable and and readable on trees and gardening and horticulture as he is on on, on wine Amazing. yeah that's been the big revelation for me actually so expect a very uh, positive uh, review when that uh, copy comes mm. to the uh, club enologic website but um what's your take i didn't know then? that we were i didn't realize that club o was expanding into horticulture on the website david no one's told well, me well it's that. not it's, really uh, 
It's no, okay, not really. Good, good. It's just because he writes about wine, I think, but it's a, <laughs> a brand extension. But uh, no, I don't think we're going to be seeing much gardening uh, in, okay, Provo, okay. Uh, in the near future. But uh, what's your take then? Because Hugh is, is very much, you know, a veteran um, and much respected uh, and has been doing it a very long time. What's your take on um, the newer um, breed of um, influencers and the like? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a nice thorny question. Yeah, well, well you, met, well, you mentioned Hugh. He's actually very, he's actually pretty good and quite active on Twitter. I don't think he's on Instagram. I'm not sure, but he's he's very pithy on Twitter, and I think he's well, he's sort of well suited to it because he doesn't take himself too seriously. He just comes up with the odd little snippet that works works very well on on Twitter. And um, whereas it's very easy to get quite sort of worthy and carried away on, on, on Twitter and uh, become overly uh, serious about things. And uh, he's, he, as, as, as you say, as, as a member of the old guard, I think took to that quite well. Yeah, in terms of influence, I suppose we're really looking more at, um, more at Instagram. Twitter now almost seems a bit old fashioned, although I I'm, admit I'm a, a devotee more of, of Twitter than Instagram, probably because I'm, I'm probably more of a words man than a than a photos man. Um, I, I think, look, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about it's about catering for your audience. And, you know, if someone's got hundreds of thousands of followers, they're obviously doing something right. But it might be that they're, they're catering for a more, a broader, less specialist audience who, as we were saying earlier, may not want uh, to know all the intimate intricacies of a wine, uh, but are just looking for a nice, easy bottle to, to pick up off the supermarket shelf on a Friday night. And if people are catering for that audience and getting them out there drinking and understanding a little bit about wine, then then great. I think maybe issues arise when, I don't know, people are, are trying to be something that they're not, uh, because it's very easy to get carried away when you get a lot of uh, a lot of influence and you get a lot of followers and you suddenly th- start commenting on issues and topics that perhaps aren't your... Your strong point and aren't why people are following you because you suddenly think you're, you know, oh, well, all these people following me, I must be so important and so influential. Uh, mm. And I think that sometimes gets a bit, can get a bit out of hand. Uh, and I must admit, I struggle sometimes with the fact that a lot of uh, influencers, it's, you know, the posts on, on Instagram particularly are very much all about them rather than, in our case, the, the wine. And that's something I, I still struggle with, but I have to accept that that's sort of the way of things these days. It's all about building your own brand as much as it is about uh, giving information on, on a particular uh, product, in our case, in our case, wine. You look at things like wine critics. I mean, the ultimate, Robert Parker, made it all about himself. Uh, well, he made his brand all about himself. He was never front and centre. He was never, you know, sitting up there and talking about himself and putting his picture there. But, but he made his verdict, you know, and himself a brand. And I suppose Instagram influencers are doing a similar thing, albeit in a very different way. It's a very good point on Robert Parker, actually, uh, an influencer uh, of a different kind. But you could not argue that he wasn't an enormous um, influencer in what he was uh, doing, of course. Um, He was the first, really, wasn't he, that that sort of made his own name as a, a, you know, as an influencer. I don't think he was necessarily doing photo shoots by by the swimming pool, but... um, but he, he sort of did a different. Went, went about it in a different way, and was obviously hugely, hugely successful. And a lot of people liked what he was doing. A lot of people loathed it. And it's the same these days. There's a lot of influencers out there that some people love and others can't stand. Another diplomatic answer uh, to a, as you said, a. a, a Sorry, a do you want thorn- me to be more provocative, David? No, I'll, I'll no, it's and- fine. I'll, I'll try and uh, get some controversy going with, with the next next answer, shall I? Well, maybe it, it's this. Uh, you you just written uh, for Harper's. You have a, a column in uh, Harper's, a trade magazine that uh, many people listening will be very familiar with. You've written about the importance of uh, content, um, and this is something that uh, that that really you know um, play, plays to, to uh, something I'm interested in as well because. Um, we've seen people who have platforms like Apple, for example, who have technology uh, really chasing after content um, in the in the sort of multimedia world. And mm. you've written about the importance of of delivering uh, content. You use the Members Club 67 Pall Mall and their new TV channel as your mm. peg for this piece. Um, just talk a bit about what you think um, is significant about content. Yeah, well, it's 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 everywhere, isn't it? I mean, every business now um, has some form of content, uh, whether it's just 
you know, just product descriptions on their website or whether it's a social media feed, um, that is still content. And because that is quite often the first contact that a potential customer will have with your business, it's hugely important that that content, A, is good and B, reflects what you, the image that you want to project. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of it in, in the wine world. I think possibly the wine world has been a bit slower than some businesses to um, to grasp this. But certainly, if you take yeah, sixty-seven pound mail that um, that I wrote about, I mean, you know, they've just launched a effectively a TV channel. They're producing six to eight hours of new content every day, uh, I believe, across three time zones, and a lot of it is very, very good. And they've got a great range of experts talking about wine and um, wine isn't always the easiest thing to talk about for reasons that we, that we articulated earlier. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're not, you're not tasting it. They are, but obviously sometimes they've, they're, they're, you are able to taste it. And 67 have been good about, you know, sending out these tasting samples. You can sit there and do a tasting with an expert who's sitting there drinking the same wine. I think they've been very successful with that. And right across the wine world we're starting to see more of it i mean most retailers now have some form of newsletter or others some have their own magazine the wine society uh berry brothers and rudd um fine and rare and i just think that uh, well i no longer sort of consider as editor of club o i no longer just look to other wine magazines as competitors you know you're now competing with a whole raft of publications not in terms necessarily of um, the type of content they're producing, but for people's attention. You know, we've all got limited attention. There's always, and there's many more things now to take our attention. So I think you have to try harder as a, as a magazine um, or a website to grab people's attention, which then, you know, makes it quite difficult. Um, do you start doing things that are outside your comfort zone in order to, to grab that attention? Sometimes that could lead to, you know, perhaps doing things that are a little bit off brand. And that, that I think would be a mistake. Um, all content, I think, has to be on brand. And that's that's the key thing with, with what we were talking about just now, about content that's produced by retailers or by um, even producers. It's such a key driver of their image. So social media is key, I think. Um, if you look at that, that's, that's again, it's possibly the first thing that people come into contact with. And I think a lot of businesses make the mistake of sort of, I don't know, giving it to the intern or, or, or a new employee who's fresh out of university because they think, oh, they're young and they've got a good TikTok feed. They'll know what they're doing. And actually, they end up producing content that isn't on brand and can do more harm than good. Very good point. Uh, so tell us, for those who are yet to discover Club Enologique. It's a beautiful magazine. It is, uh, I, I know I'm probably biased, but I, I'm going to say this <laughs> anyway. It is, it is absolutely one of the most beautiful magazines I've ever seen or had anything to do with. Um, so tell us, um, beyond being a beautiful looking magazine, uh, tell us what you are seeking to do with Club Enologique. Well, that was certainly a big part of it. And, and thank you for, for your kind words, because, um, you know, obviously there's a few wine magazines out there. And uh, when we launched, it was very much print first, which is unusual in this day and age. And uh, magazines are not easy to make commercially viable um, uh, these days. And so we felt that we needed a, a point of difference and that point of difference had to be in, in the visuals, um, which I think is something generally that um, with other wine magazines down the years has perhaps been forgotten a little bit, um, you know, in favour of hard technical information and reviews. And, and wine, at the end of the day, is a, is, a, is a product to be celebrated and enjoyed. And I don't think there's anything better than, you know, um, heading off on a, on a vineyard tour of Napa Valley or uh, Mendoza or the Adelaide Hills or wherever it might be. You know, these are beautiful areas. And wine, is, as I say, is, 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 is a product that brings a lot of joy. Um, but looking at a bottle of wine in a picture is not necessarily reflective of that. So we tried hard to try and really bring that, that, that beauty of the wine world to life. Yeah, in the last year or, or 18 months or so, basically since the, since the pandemic, obviously we, we pivoted as the, uh, as the, uh, the common parlance is to, to focus a bit more online. Uh, it was a good opportunity while everyone was you know, stuck at home in front of screens to try and bolster the online side, to up our profile a little bit, get the name out there, uh, which I think we've, we've done to a, to a good extent. And now we've, we've um, more clearly demarcated the two. So the online channel is very much uh, aimed at a more um, 
I would say broader audience, more accessible content, perhaps a little bit more mass market. And the magazine is very much aimed at the high end, the collector's side of things. Uh, and uh, we've got a new, um, a new venture online coming up in September, which will, which will further demarcate those two. Yeah, I think, I think as I say, the, the actually, actually the, the last 18 months has helped us crystallise what we're doing. And, um, and uh, yeah, you'll see a bit more of that in, in September. You've written about your love for Rioja. And uh, this interested me because um, you've been doing your homework, I know you, I have, yeah. Well, I know, yeah. and I know yeah. you love Burgundy as well, and you talked about your um, your your classy well, Aussie Chardonnay, indeed, as well. So um, <laughs> you have broad taste, but you did you your um, it's almost when you uh, talk about Rioja, it's almost like you are are trying to shake people slightly. You're trying to say, sort of, wake up, you know, look what Rioja is. Is that um, fair? Um, yeah, maybe. I think I, yeah, I mean, I think I know a couple of columns that you're referring to. I, I suppose I feel like Rioja gets a bit of a hard, hard deal and I was trying to champion it because, yeah, it's my go-to wine. It's my go-to wine midweek, 15 quid. I, and I just think it's astonishing value and I, I generally find it quite reliable. But yeah, I think you're right. I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because Burgundy and Bordeaux and the Rhone and whatever gets so much attention in the fine wine world. And actually, I think Rioja... In terms of value, in terms of value, at the fine wine level, so now I'm talking, you know, 50 quid and above, I think competes extremely well. You could find a 20, 30, even 40-year-old Rioja that's still got plenty to offer. They age very well um, for a fraction of the price of the equivalent wine in uh, from Bordeaux or, or, or Burgundy and I would argue that they you know they, they compete very well at that level so I do think it gets a bit of a reward it's, it's not very fashionable that's the thing um, and I think perhaps because it does perform quite well at the lower end of the spectrum you know more more down towards the, even five or ten quid mm. I think because it, it performs well there whereas I would argue that um, perhaps Bordeaux, Burgundy, Napa don't I think some people feel, oh, well, it can't really be a fine wine because it's a mass market wine. And it's slightly marketed as such as well. I mean, I think the, the Consejo over there, the, the generic body, are slightly, um, how can I say, they're driven a bit more by the big producers uh, who pay the bills. And therefore, they tend to promote the, the mass market wines more than they do the really top end wines. And there are some fabulous top end wines, as I say, that aren't, you know, aren't at the exorbitant levels of some um of the more classic regions injudicious use of oak sometimes a bit of an issue that yeah, doesn't well, I'm help a bit of a, i'm a i'm a bit of an oak fiend and i don't mind admitting it and again you know my my tastes are, are not are not fashionable david um you know i like a bit of oak on a chardonnay i like a bit of oak on a on a, on a rioja for sure and obviously it comes as part of the package that's part of the deal um and yeah sometimes it is a li little bit overdone and it's certainly not fashionable uh right now but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I and mean, I bring it back to, to, to the Bordeaux comparison when you were saying about, you know, I've been sort of fighting the fight for, for Rioja. If you think about the top, the class growths of Bordeaux that get tasted on Primeur every year with great fanfare, and you get all these writers going over there who are enthralled to Bordeaux, and they're tasting an unfinished wine, barely fit for, 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 for tasting, yet alone drinking, um, that's six months old or so, and is then going to go into oak for two years. And they're giving their verdict on that wine. And then that verdict is used by the producers to sell the wine. Uh, although you won't be able to actually get hold of the wine for another couple of years. And even then, it probably won't be ready to drink for another 10 years. Whereas Rioja, they do the ageing for you, potentially up to five years in the case of a Grand Reserva. And then it's yours at a very reasonable price without any of the associated fanfare and controversy and you know reliance on critics scores to sell it so yeah i think it's a much more consumer friendly wine good point do you have a <laughs> desert <you>. island <laughs> wine is there one that is just uh it's, it's it doesn't have to be a right brioche by the way because we've already mentioned there are other wines that you like yeah. a lot as well you have a uh, uh it, it's a you have broad tastes so do you have a desert it's island a, wine i don't i don't it's an impossible question, isn't it? Do, do people have one? I don't know. Uh, you mean a specific, you know, yeah. producer, vintage? Yes. You know, I don't. I honestly don't. 
I'm not sure I could think of one. Um, no, you don't have to. It's a, it's a, you know, when I interviewed Jancis, she made a point of saying, oh, I absolutely could not do that. I could not answer that question. So it's fair enough, I don't enough, think really. you can. I mean, just... I, do you know what? It would probably be a white burgundy, but then I think if it's just one bottle on a desert island, I don't want it to be oxidised or I don't want it to be, you know, um, <laughs> past its best. So that would be a consideration. I, I mean, if money was no object, I would drink more white burgundy than I do. And I already drink quite a bit, but we're talking more, more sort of Macon, um, you know, Saint-Varin, maybe a Chablis if I'm feeling a little bit, uh, you know, more, 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 more deep-pocketed. Um, so given the chance, I would be drinking more Merceau and Montmaché, I guess, if, if that's an answer. I don't know. I, I mean... That's OK. Yeah. The funny thing well, is, then. the best... So I, look, I think about the best wines I've ever had and really enjoyed, and funnily enough, they're all... Well, there's, there's, there's three that immediately spring to mind, and they are all older Napa Cabernets. And I don't know if it was, you know, Napa has a certain reputation um, as being quite big and bulky and bold, but they age fantastically. And certainly going back to things like times like the 70s, those wines age unbelievably well. Whether or not the wines from the early part of this century, well, I don't, I don't know. And Time, time will tell, but certainly some of the most pleasure I've ever had have been from from older older Napa. Not actually that old. I remember a Ridge Ridge Montebello '97. I had fantastic. Mm. I remember drinking a, a Robert Mondavi for my birth year, uh, 1973. In case you were wondering, David, I know I'm, I'm hard to imagine, isn't it? It's that was fantastic. Yeah. And I remember drinking an Inglenook '58, which possibly took the biscuit. Just unbelievably drinkable. Uh, smooth, easy, effortless, that's the word again. You know, it had fruit and it had a little bit of vigour left, but it was somehow just at ease with itself. But actually, and forgive the forgive this indulgent name dropping, I did drink it with Francis Ford Coppola, who of course now owns Inglenook. And, and I do wonder, perhaps I was a little bit seduced by, you know, being in the company of this, uh, uh, of this uh, great film director who, you know, sort of, very, very generously um, tolerated all my questions about films rather than, you know, <laughs> wine, which I actually wanted to talk about. Um, so it may be, but uh, yeah, the, the circumstance came to play there in terms of my judgment of the wine. OK, so basically you're going to need a case of wine on your desert island, aren't you? I think that's what we've, uh, we've concluded. Guy, it's uh, With fantastic. some A-list celebs as well, well to, to drink oh, with. Yes. Actually, oh, no, that is not, that is not, my, not my world at all. A movie mogul as well. OK, we'll see what we can do, uh, should you ever find yourself stranded on a desert island. Uh, but uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, really interesting. Uh, Guy, uh, thank you very much. Uh, good luck for the changes in September. And thank, thank you, you for David. joining us on The Drinking Hour. A pleasure. Cheers. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And there's just time for our second medal-winning selection from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And here's one for Guy. Uh, he was talking about his love of Rioja and the bang for your buck that it brings. Well, La Rioja Alta from Vina Ardanza, a Rioja Reserva 2015, won a gold medal with 95 points. It's 80% Tempranillo and 20% Garnacha. Founded in 1890 by five Riojan and Basque families, La Rioja Alta and Ardanza merged in 1904, and Vina Ardanza was registered as the name in 1942. All the oak for the wines comes from the USA, and 1% of the company's profits goes to helping families in Saharan Africa. The judges said, astoundingly deep and complex, with aromas of cedar and rich cigar smoke layered with intensely savoury Hamon Iberico. Gamey, aged chorizo brings an earthiness to the palate that is balanced by hints of caramelised orange peel and subtle vanilla spice. And that one's available at Armit Wines. Here's another I think Guy would uh, rather favour. District 7 Chardonnay 2019 from Scheid Family Wines in Monterey, California. It won a silver medal 
For the first 15 years or so, Scheid Family Wines was known as the Monterey Farming Corporation, a grape grower that sold all of its production to other wineries for use in their own brands. Uh, now it makes wines as well, including this medal winner. Uh, the judges said of this smooth and creamy palette of orchard and tropical fruits with toasty notes, vanilla and spice. The rounded palette has good acidity and flinty minerality. Excellent wine. And here's a brandy uh, to round off from Spain's deep south, uh, Lustau Brandy de Jerez, uh, Solera Reserva from Emilio Lustau, uh, won a gold medal with 95 points. It's brandy aged within the famous Sherry Triangle for three years in a Solera of old Amontillado casks. Uh, the judges said, Sherry notes dance around this elegant nose of exotic cacao, fig, cinnamon, gunpowder and cherry. Langrously long, balanced, refined, hints of raspberry, dried flowers and guava on the palate, rich and smooth, sweet and round, soft and alluring. It's a pretty languorous tasting note as well. And that is it for the drinking hour for this edition here on Food FM. Thank you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me uh, if you'd like to. Uh, that'd be very nice. You're very welcome. Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you liked what you heard and you're listening on iTunes, do please give us a nice five star review too, if you wouldn't mind. That'd be very kind of you. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.